All right, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together, Lord. We thank you for all the rain that we've been getting and the, that we need so much. We ask you to bless us as we look at your word. Let your Holy Spirit guide and lead us. In your Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 10, starting at verse 1. Woe unto them that decree right, unrighteousness decrees and that right grievousness which they have prescribed to turn aside the needy from judgment and to take away the right of, from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. And what will you do in the day of visitation and in the day of desolation, which shall come from, from far? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your glory? Without me, they shall bow down under the prisoners and they shall fall under the slain for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. All right. This basically is a continuation of chapter 9 for this first one. And I think this is one of those places where they put the chapter break in the wrong place. Because once you leave this first five verses, uh, first four verses, we go into a whole other topic. So this is one of those places, uh, and it's my opportunity to keep you in mind that when you get to these chapters, they are man-made, not God-inspired. The, the chapters and verses were put in there, and they did a pretty good job for most of them. They were put in there so that we would know where to go, and it wouldn't be me standing here teaching. Okay, turn to Isaiah, and about uh, one-third of the way, one-sixth of the way through, and we'll read, okay? Uh, when they were quoted, and that's why Paul never quotes, you know, and, and Peter and all those guys don't quote verses. They will say, the prophet Isaiah said, and you would be expected to know where in the book of Isaiah to go find that quote. So uh, I like the idea that we have chapters and verses. <laughs> but always remember that they're not inspired. There's been times when they break a verse and you know, break a chapter and that verse belongs to the previous chapter. And in this case, all four of these verses belong in chapter 9 more than they do in chapter 10. Uh, but he says, woe to them that decree unrighteous decrees. And the decree unrighteous decrees. And that literally is what's going on in our world today. Where our government all the time says unrighteous things, makes unrighteous laws. Our media puts all kinds of unrighteous you know, statements out there. Uh, our whole world is based upon this whole idea that good is bad, uh, bad is good, and, and good is bad and you know, trying to push this whole agenda upon us that if you don't accept what we're trying to push, there's something wrong with you. Okay, so we hold biblical understanding of things. We say it's wrong and they go, well, you're wrong. You're, you're intolerant, you're really bad because you have these really narrow-minded views. And, you know, and as I said, when I was in college, I, you know, the second time around, I go, you know what? Yes, I am. I'm intolerant, I'm, and I'm narrow. You know, uh, and this is what he says, you know, woe to those people that decree these things. This was happening in, in the day that Isaiah was prophesying. It's happened, you know, just as we said over and over, there's nothing new under the sun, okay? Um, and they've, they've written grievousness or troublesome things that they have prescribed, they continually write, okay? And so we see this, that Isaiah saying there's coming a time when everything's going to be turned upside down. And in his case, he had already seen it in his day, and it happened, you know, the book of Judges had it happen multiple times. Isaiah's seeing it happen. Uh, at the end of the kingdoms, both of them are going to be turning everything upside down, and we're seeing it in our day, that everybody's turning everything up, upside down. If it's good, they call it bad. If it's bad, they call it good. And, you know, we as Christians have to keep saying, God says it's wrong. Not judging people, but that God says this is wrong. Now, leave it to them. And I'm not going to go, you're, you're really a sinner because God says this is wrong. No, God says this is wrong. I was talking to uh, an assistant manager of mine one time who was, who was a lesbian, and she, goes, she asked me about what I thought about lesbianism or homosexuality in general because most of my crew at that store was homosexuals. And I go, well, God calls it a sin, and I just don't want to see it in my store. <laughs> okay? Uh, and so we just had a little bit of discussion about what God said about it. Not judging her, not telling her it was wrong, but this is what God says. And, uh, you know, and this is what happens in our world today. 
All these things are going on that God calls sin. And it started so innocuous in our country with the whole idea of living together in fornication. And the church didn't say much about it at the time. And now we're into homosexuality, cross-gender, people not even knowing whether they're male or female, depend, you know, in spite of what their physical uh, attributes say about them, they want to claim that they're something else. And that's where our world is headed to. You know, a major problem. You know, people not accepting who God created them to be and following his standards. And once you start sliding down that slope, who knows where it stops? It, 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 only God's revival can ever make it stop. Otherwise, we end up, as in the days of Noah, where men did what was right in their own eyes and God judged the world. And we're headed toward that direction, the final judgment after the tribulation period. So this is, this is his warning. He says, they turn aside the needy from judgment, those who are, are low and, and in need of things. That, and he's basically saying they can't even get to the courts. They cannot even get to help in the courts. And you know, we're not too far from that at this point. You know, everybody says to the, you know, at this point, if you don't have money, you can't get justice. And if you have money, you're, not, you're buying your justice. You're not getting justice. And you know, there's a lot of truth to that statement. It's not 100% true yet, but there's a lot of truth in that statement. And it says, they take away the right from the poor of my people. And this is an interesting statement because this is also happening in our day. The government is trying to say, we create your rights. We give you rights. Healthcare has been called a right. The right to die is, called, is, is a right. The right to have an abortion. All these things that are they're trying to make a right, and only God gives rights. Our founding father said that God gave us inalienable rights. In other words, he gives the rights. And if God gives us the rights, nobody can take them away from us because they're gods. And yet, we have governments trying to take away God-given rights to people. And here he says the same thing. They take the right of the poor away. Which rights? Just about anything. The right to own their property, the right to, to be able to address the courts, the right to do anything. They justify it by saying they're giving us security in exchange for our rights and freedoms. We're giving you security, you know. The Greek philosopher said, those who give up their rights for security deserve neither. And that's exactly what we get. And it is true. Our government right now uses every disaster that happens to take some more rights away. And if they keep going, there won't be any rights. We will just be the slaves that the government wants us to be. And that's where they're trying to push it to. You know, that we will be enslaved by the government. And they're doing a good job of it. They're, they're buying the poor with welfare. They're buying the businesses and the wealthy with supplemental payments for their companies. And you know all the other things they do for us to, to buy us. And the problem with that is when you take government money, the government has the right to tell you what to do. And they tried this under the first Bush. They tried to give uh, churches money to take care of the needy. And some churches very foolishly took the money. And then later on, after Bush was out of office, they said, OK, now that you're taking government money, these are the things you must do. And the churches that rebelled against it were told, fine, you took our money, pay it back. OK, so they were going to catch 22. You either found some way to pay back the money that the government had given you, which was probably impossible, or you obeyed what the government was telling you to do. And this is the problem of taking government money. You know, whatever it's for, you know, you take their money, they have the right to tell you what you can and can't do with the money or with, with your life. And they do and will. And here they're saying, they take away the rights of the poor. And that the widows may be their prey and that they may rob from the fatherless. You know, I don't know, when I read these things, what can you take away from the widow and the fatherless? They don't have much to begin with. But he says, even what they do have, the unrighteous will take away. And we see that over and over again. And, you know, and it says, what will you do in the day of visitation and destruction, the day of judgment and destruction? Okay? Those who are opposing the, the poor, the, the, the helpless, 
God has judgment coming their way. And you know, just because they think they're getting away, from, away with things, eventually judgment falls. And we see this over and over in history. Governments that oppress their people eventually fall. And they will be judged. And they will suffer the consequence for this evil that they've done. This verse is appropriate for later on when we read here about Assyria taking Israel. And God says, because of your abuse on them, I will now judge you. Now, unfortunately, it was a few <laughs> dozen years or, or so later, but God always brings the judgment upon people that abuse others. And, you know, we say over and over again, sin has consequences, and if you abuse the helpless, you abuse the poor, you abuse the weak, God will take judgment eventually. All right? And that's the big key. Eventually, he takes that judgment. God doesn't keep books the way we do. You know, we always look at it and say, well, God, they got away with it. And God says, no, they haven't. Number one, you're not in their skin knowing what problems they're dealing with now. And you won't, and you're not going to be in their skin down the road when they do get the direct judgment for not repenting. And so we want to be very careful when we look at situations to say, God, you're not fair. And God says, my time is not up. And we've talked about this, you know, the idea of the farmer. If the farmer tries to figure out whether he's a good businessman after he's plowed his field, plant, you know, uh, put the fertilizer down and planted the seeds, he's going to say, I'm a total failure. I've spent a lot of money and got nothing for it. Well, Mr. Farmer, you're, you're, you're counting your chickens way too early. <laughs> you're counting your, counting your lack of crops way too early. Wait until the harvest. And once you've gone through harvest, then you can count the books and say, okay, I made money or I didn't make money. And God's the same way. When we start complaining, God, you're, you're not doing, God says, we haven't got to the end yet. They haven't, harvest time has not come yet. So we want to be careful of that. Uh, what will you do in that day of visitation? Where will you flee to for help? And where will you leave your glory or your abundance or riches? The thing about that statement is everybody, when they die, will leave their stuff behind. Okay? Everybody. There's not a single person in this world that's going to take their stuff with them when they die. Now, they might arrange for it to stay with their family or, you know, within the family, but they still do not get to keep their stuff. And when their family dies, they don't get to keep the stuff. You know, so we want to keep this in mind. Where, where are you going to put your glory when the day of destruction comes? You, know, you stole, you, you robbed, you did all these things, and God says, what's it going to get you? In the long run, you're not going to keep it. You know, uh, and it says, With, without me, they shall bow down under the, under the prisoners, or actually it says, in place of the prisoners. Uh, and they shall fall in place of the slain. For his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And remember that last part, his hand is stretched out still, was the refrain every four, four or five verses in chapter 9. His anger was reached out against the, the, the oppressors. And... is in anger, because that's the context of all these verses. His hand is stretched out in discipline and anger over and over and over again. Um, yeah, not for help in this particular context. Now, in one sense, that might be true. His hand is stretched out. If you want to reach out, his hand is stretched out for that purpose, too. You know, if we call out in repentance, God will grab hold of our hand and turn us around and lift us up. The problem is, how long does it take us to call out for repentance? Now, when we were in the book of Judges, you remember that they would get into, they would go into sin, they would fall, they'd be in captivity. And usually it took them years before they cried out. Now, the children of Israel, Egypt, there for 100 plus years, and they finally call out at the end, we need help, God, this is getting to be too much. You know, and you think about this, how often do we struggle without turning to God for a lot longer than we should. Hopefully not 30, 40, 50 years like, like some of these examples in the Bible, but you know, even if it's decades or years or even months, you know, God is saying, I'm here. Call on me. <laughs> Repent. You know, but repentance means that we have to humble ourselves and say, I can't do it. And repentance is actually harder than it would seem because it does mean, God, I give up. I can't do this. 
I surrender myself to you. And that is very hard for human beings to do, to just surrender. All right, verse 5. O Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hand is my indignation. I will send him against the hypocritical nations, against the people of my wrath will I give him charge, to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire in the street of the streets. Howbeit he means not so, neither does his heart think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Kalno as Gargamesh? Is not Hamath as Armpad? Is not Samaria as Damascus? As my hand hath found the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not, as I have done to, unto Samaria and to her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? Therefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his looks. For he has said, By the strength of my hand have I done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasury, and I have put down the, inhabit the inhabitants like a valiant man. And my hand has found the nest of riches of the people, and as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth, and there is none that moves a wing, or opens mouth, or peeps. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth it with it? And shall the saw magnify himself against him that shakes it? And as, as if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up, or the staff sh should lift up itself as if it were no wood? Therefore saith the Lord of hosts, Send among his fat ones leanness, and under his, the, his glory he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. Let's stop there, because I want to get into this. Before we get into his judgment, we'll look at what God's saying to him. Uh, O Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in my hand is mine indignation. God used Assyria to judge the northern kingdom, Israel. Okay, Assyria went in and conquered Israel because of all their unrighteous acts. And God kept telling them, you're going to go into judgment, you're going to go into judgment. And remember, we said, when the two kingdoms divided after Solomon, the northern kingdom the king said, well, we've got to do something to keep people from going to Jerusalem to worship God there. So he says, we're going to create golden calves. We're going to put one in Bethel, just north of Jerusalem, and one all the way up into Dan in the northern part of the kingdom. And we're going to keep it so that, and he declared, these are your gods. These are your gods. Don't go to Jerusalem to worship the, the God in Jerusalem. And his fear was that if people went to Jerusalem, they would eventually want to reunite as a country and become one people again. So from that point on to the time they went into captivity, they never had a righteous time. They always worshiped idols. All through the, all through the three dynasties of the northern kingdom, always worshiped idols. Different idols, but the golden calf worship was there the whole time. And they added idols all the time. And this is God saying them, because of your sin, I'm sending judgment. And the judgment I'm using is Assyria. And he says in verse 6, I will send him against the hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I take him, give him charge to take the spoil and to take prey and to tread them down like the mire in the streets. Okay, so he says, this is pretty severe judgment he's saying. Okay, they're going to they're kill people, they're going to take people captive, and they're going to tread them down as if it was mud. And this is exactly what Assyria did. Okay, they went in, but they were more cruel than God wanted them to be. And this is what he's going to go on into this and saying. Uh, but God's saying, you are to take my people captive. He didn't want them totally destroyed, totally killed. He wanted them captive, just as he did in the book of Judges and all through these various times. Take them captive, put them into, uh, you know, take tribute, you know, make them your slaves, but at least treat them as people. And... Uh, this is not what Assyria did. Okay, verse 7. Howbeit, he means not so. Okay? In other words, Assyria doesn't mean to do what God has asked to. Neither in his heart does he think it. But in his heart is to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. In other words, their plan of Assyria was to totally destroy these nations. Uh, kind of do what Israel was told to do to the 
uh, inhabitants of the promised land, kill them all. Assyria was taking this idea, we're just going to kill everybody. Not just Israel, but everybody. Their idea was just kill. All right? Wipe out everybody. No problems, no, nobody to rebel against you. If you've killed them all, there's nobody to, to be going against you. And that was, his heart, that was their heart and intent according to this verse. Uh, and it says, for he says, are not my princes altogether kings? You know, aren't my, aren't my princes, you know, equivalent to their kings? You know, my, my princes are strong, stronger than their kings. Uh, is not Kalno as Gargamesh? Now, Kalno is a city in the land of Shinar. If you don't know where Shinar is, that's current day Babylon. And it's just outside of Babylon. And it was established by Nimrod. So when he says this city here, he's talking about an old city, all right? Because this is going all the way back to Nimrod. And remember, Nimrod is the one who builds, starts building the Tower of Babel. He's, he's the one that starts a great kingdom. He's the one that starts all the false religions of our current day are based in Nimrod's teachings and what he started, all right? We can trace all our false religions back to him. And he was called the mighty hunter. And he wasn't hunting animals. He was hunting people. Okay? And he was trying to put everybody, he sacrificed people. He was trying to put people under the subjection of his gods and taking them away from the one true God. And the main person that was against him during that period of time was Eber. And Eber is the founder of all the nations that are called Hebrews. Okay? And so we've talked about this before. Jew, all Jews are Hebrews, but not uh, are Hebrew, but not all Hebrews are Jews. Okay, anybody who's descendant from Eber is a Hebrew, and they are followers of the one God. They didn't go through and get the Ten Commandments and the promises that Abraham got, but they were the followers of one God. And there were several of these different nations out there that were followers of one God. Okay, when Moses made it to Midian and he ended up marrying Zipporah, they were followers of one God. All right, so that would be the God of Israel at that time. Uh, not of Israel, but the same God that Israel worshipped. They were the followers of one God. Uh, the, you know, and there's various different kingdoms. A lot of Eber's people moved toward the Far East. Many of the Asian countries before relatively recent days, times in the last millennia, worshiped one God. In the Chinese language, in their characters and everything, there's all kinds of Bible stories in their characters. Uh, they were a follower of one God, and seemingly to be the God that we, we believe in. Now, they have been ruined over the years, and all these other religions have come in and taken their place, and they're now not, not the one God place that they used to be, but at one point, they were worshipers of one God. And so we see this. Now, does that mean they were perfect worshipers of the one God? No. Over time, traditions and habits get put in. In the Christian church, the way we worship and everything is based upon a lot of bad practices in many cases. We don't, we don't worship quite the way they did in the biblical times. Now, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. They're, they're traditions. Okay, because I can find no thing nowhere in the Bible where it says this is how you're supposed to worship God. Okay, uh, the Jewish people, their teacher sat and the people stood, and what they were doing is they were honoring the teacher. Okay, and that happened all the way into Jesus's day. Jesus usually sat down. If you read the, if you look at the scriptures, he sat and the others stood. All right, and we see that over and over again. Is that the right way to teach? I don't know. It's the only way we got that we have an example of how it was taught. But Kalno is this town in, in outside of uh, Babylon. And it says, is it as Gargamesh, Gar which is a Hittite city, all right, which is a city in that general area that, that Israel is in, is not Hamath. And Hamath is a city in Syria as Ahmad, which is a city in northern Syria. So he's, he's saying, aren't these cities, you know, some of these important cities, aren't they like some smaller city? Aren't they like some important? Is not Samaria as Damascus, and Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. And it says, isn't, you know, the capital and, and Damascus has taken it. Now Damascus and Assyria, uh, uh, Damascus and uh, Samaria are one. 
That's kind of what's going on in our world today as we look at it, you know, our world is becoming so one that you couldn't, can't tell any different city apart really, other than, you know, especially if you don't listen to the languages being spoken or the signage. You know, they all act the same, they, you know, are, and everything is trying to be brought under the control of our one world government, you know, which is probably going to be centered in the UN. And the UN is trying to get everything under their control. We're seeing all kinds of problems. And this is what he's saying, aren't these people all the same? Yeah, they're, they're, they're nothing but the, but the same. And he says, and as my hand found kingdoms of idols and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and Samaria, basically Assyria saying, none of these other gods were able to stop them, so neither will Samaria or Jerusalem. Okay, conquered all these other gods, nothing's gonna stop me from taking Jerusalem and uh, Israel. Now he is gonna take Israel, but God is gonna stop Assyria from taking Jerusalem. He is not going to conquer Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar will later on. And Nebuchadnezzar conquers Assyria. So, uh, but his boast is, I'm gonna take all of Israel. I'm gonna take all that, all that land. Damascus, Jerusalem, they're all, their gods are no better than all the other gods that I've conquered. And uh, says, shall I not as I have done unto Samaria and to her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? Listen to the pride in his voice. I've conquered all these other nations. I've conquered, I conquered Samaria. Jerusalem's not going to stand. And God is saying, no, you're not taking that. You're not taking Jerusalem. And uh, we look in here, verse 12. Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord has performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of his stout heart, the king of Assyria, and the glory of his high looks. God says, I'm going to go after his pride. He thinks he's so great. He thinks he's so important. He thinks he's going to conquer the whole world. I was using him as a tool for, for punishing my people, but I am going to stop him. And this is very important for us to understand. God is in control always. Even when it doesn't look like he's in control, he's in control. Uh, Jerusalem at this point with a mighty army that's conquering everything in its path is the king, and I can't remember who was king at, the, at that time, is looking around saying, oh, woe is me, I'm going to be, I'm in trouble. And God says, no, I'm going to stop him. He's not going to be uh, able to take you. But you are going to suffer punishment. And that's what he says, when I have completed the whole work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, then I will take care of this prideful man. Right, there was going to be the, the trial, the terror on them. But God's saying, you're not going to be conquered. This is what he's going to say later, you know, throughout all the other prophets and here. It says, for, verse 13, For he has said, my strength and my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent. I have removed the bounds of the people or the boundaries, and I have robbed them of the treasure. I will, I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. Okay, more pride. This man, this king is so prideful, nothing is going to stop me. Now this is the pride of all great conquerors. Nothing will stop me and every single conqueror in the world has failed to conquer all the world. Uh, and he's the same part. He's going to actually have a small kingdom compared to the next couple of kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is going to have a much larger kingdom than, than he does. Greek, the Greek empire is going to be much bigger than his and the Roman empire was even bigger than those but none of them have ever conquered the world. And we've had many since then trying to conquer the world. Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, well, not so much Mussolini, he followed Hitler. Uh, Mao Zedong, all these guys were cl claiming, we're gonna conquer the world, it's gonna be ours. None of them have ever done it. You know, God stops their pride from taking over everything. And here God says, you know, uh, and he goes on, My hand has found the nest of riches of the people, and as one gathereth eggs that are left, I have gathered all the earth, and there is none that moves wing or opens mouth or peeps. And he keeps this idea of, 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 of this statement in the, the nest, you know, going in and robbing the nest. I found an empty nest. Nothing can stop me from taking the eggs. Okay, and he's calling the world a nest that he can um, be able to take. Now we get a picture of God speaking uh, shall the axe boast itself against him that he was there with? <laughs> you know, can you picture that? You know, the axe saying to the 
woodsman, you know, you, I'm the greatest thing that ever happened. You know, you, I chopped down these trees, you know, you know you're just nothing. I, I'm the one that chops down these trees. And the woodsman would say, oh, yeah, let me put you down and see what you can do. Now, if anybody was having a conversation with their axe, it would be a big problem. But, but you understand that's what he's kind of putting out. This is a really a picture. Shall the saw magnify itself against him who shakes it or moves it back and forth? Uh, and as, as if the rod should shake itself against him to lift it up. You know, here's my hand. The rod automatically yes. shakes itself at you. Yes. And, and as the staff should be lifted up as if it was not wood, would the staff jump up and walk around, basically? Okay. This is kind of a comedy that God's saying, you know, you know, this guy thinks he's really important, you know, but he's really not that, you know, I'm the one in control. You know, and then he goes through these really funny pictures. And... Uh, then he goes, therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness, and under his glory he shall kindle a burning like unto the burning of a fire. Now let me go back, because I stopped there at 16, didn't I? And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame, and it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day, and shall consume the glory of his forest, and his fruit, fruitful field, both soul and body, and they shall be as when they were standard bearer, when a standard bearer fainteth. And the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few, shall be few that a child may write them. Okay. The punishment that God is going to put upon him is kind of an interesting thing as we look at this. He says, you know, I shall send leanness to the fat ones, hunger, desires. You know, and, you know, this is something we keep sharing. So many people will look at the rich, the famous, the people who seem to have it all. Okay, and everybody will say the same thing. If I only had, you know, if I only had a million dollars or three million dollars or, you know, 20 million dollars, I'd be happy. No, you wouldn't. They're not happy. There's no way you'd be happy without God. If I just had fame and fortune, I'd be happy. You know, all these things, if we just look at all the gossip pages and all the news accounts of so-and-so famous singer or fam famous ball player uh, has committed suicide or was, you know, had an accident in their drunken stupor, you know. They're not happy. They have leanness in their soul because God is the only one that can fill us. And without God, we will never be fulfilled. We'll never be happy. And that's what God says. I'm going to send leanness to them. Not just starvation, but leanness, unhappiness. And, you know, it's easier to be hungry than it is to be totally unsatisfied. Because unsatisfaction, even you seem to have everything. God, I have three square meals a day. I've got a, the world professional chef cooking them. I've got the cars in the garage. I've got a chauffeur. I've got the staff to cover all my, all my 90 bedrooms in my house. And, you know, I can go anywhere I want, but I'm not happy. That is worse than being hungry. At least if you're hungry, you know that eventually you're going to eat something and have some satisfaction for your hunger. But when you have leanness in your soul, there's no, no happiness there. And people who walk away from God, who backslide, get this leanness in their heart that just nothing satisfies. He says, I'm going to send leanness, and, and under their glory shall be a burning like a burning fire. That whole dissatisfaction. You know, I've, I've heard people say that they feel like their whole life is burning up around them because they're never happy. There's no joy. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame, and it shall, it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. God says, I'm going to be victorious. He says he's claimed victory over all these gods. Let's show him who God is. Okay? And this is what God will do. At some point when we repent and we stand with God, God stands up to be our defender. The children of Israel in Egypt, God stood up to be their defender. And he sent 10 plagues against, against their gods to show that he is God. All through the wilderness wanderings, God fed the people manna. He gave them water to drink. He met their needs. He gave them quail when they complained they wanted meat. He gave them victory in all their battles. And yet they were never happy because they still did not know and love God. Okay? And yet he provided for them in spite of all their disobedience. And yet for us, he says, I am the one that will devour all of these troubles that are that seeming to be growing up or underneath you. 
And it shall, in verse 18, and, and shall consume the glory of his forest and his fruitful field, both soul and body, and they shall be as a standard bearer, thing, as they shall be when a standard bearer fainteth. Now, this is kind of interesting because in the Hebrew, standard bearer actually means a sick, sickly person. And I don't know why it says standard bearer here. Sickly person. Because a standard bearer is the one that carries the standard. Yeah. Now, the standard bearer is always the target in battle in those days because they represented the gathering place. That was where if, they sounded re if you sounded retreat, you were to head to the standard bearer in, in retreat. What's that next word? Fainteth. Fainteth, faints away, die, you know, fall, falls down. So he shall be actually saying you shall be as a sick person when he falls down. Oh. Okay. Now a standard bearer does fall down in battle quite often, but you know it's not the same type of word that, that it is in the in the in the Hebrew. Okay. Well, the word that they translate as standard bearer would be oh, sick person. Okay. I don't know why they put standard bearer in there. It's sick person, sick, sickly person or sick yeah, person. Because a standard bearer is usually your strongest person in your army who's going to hold that, who can take the attacks because they don't get to defend themselves. Their, their hands are holding up the, the standard, which was big. Okay, if you've seen any of the old movies, you see that great big uh, flag or standard in, in the, at, on the outskirts of the battle? That was called a standard. And it would be, it would have the picture of the king or whatever the king was and it was where if you retreated for that king you retreated back to his standard uh, or the city if they, if they kept the standard in the city oh no not that kind of <laughs> no no but uh, in, in if you've ever seen the cowboy movies with the cavalry riding, they would have the one carrying the flag and another one would carry this, so this pendant. That would be a standard, and they were the standard bearers. And there was always somebody in, that was picked that if the standard bearer got shot, killed, or fell, you know, fell down, got injured, somebody else's job, and they were assigned, was to go pick up that standard and hold the standard because the standard had to be held up at all times because it was the rallying part. It was the sign that you were still being victorious. And they would have three or four people that were assigned to make sure that the standard bearer, the standard was picked up if it fell. Uh, so he says, I'm going to chop you down, you know, uh, o, o king of, and then I love this verse 19. And the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few that a child may write them. Okay, picture this, a child, a, a young person who's barely learning to count. He can count to 10. I mean, that's what it's saying. Your trees, your forest your, that you're taking such pride in is going to be destroyed and, and, and knocked down. And you'll have so few that a young child you know, can count them. You know, and you know that he's not picking an adult because if an, an educated adult can count really high. They just know to keep going. A child, you know, if you've ever been trying to teach a child to count, where's the first place they stop? Ten. All right? And they might not even get to ten. Because after 10, you don't know what to go count to. If you learn a foreign language, you can usually learn to count to 10. And then it's like, OK, where do I go for 11? All right? Uh, and then you learn how to count to through your teens. Because all languages have, that I've learned have this idea of the teens. And then you get into something where you can actually keep going further. All you need to learn is 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. And you can keep counting forever. So basically, he's saying, you know, your trees are going to be You've taken pride in your trees, your forest, your, your, your woods, because <laughs> Damascus and that area was well known for their, their trees and, and their forest. And he says, I'm going to destroy them all. Verse 20, And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. And though the people... Though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption even determined in the midst of all the land. So it says that God will bring a remnant back of Israel. Okay? And this is something we've shared many times. God always has a remnant of people all through history. Always. No matter how bad the nation of Israel got, there was a remnant that followed him. 
No matter how bad various nations have fallen, there's been a remnant that followed him. During the dark ages when uh, the Catholic Church moved further and further and further and further away from the Bible, there was a remnant that were following God. And then there was the Reformation. And as we get in a darker and darker time in our day and age, there will be a remnant that continues to follow God. Even after the rapture of the church, he says in Revelation that he's going to choose 144,000 Jews to be the missionaries. There will be a remnant, even during that time, preaching the gospel. In the days before the flood, Noah and his family were the remnant that followed God. There's always a remnant, remnant, sometimes a very small remnant, but there's always a remnant that follows God. And here Isaiah is saying there's a come a time that the remnant of Israel and those that escaped shall no more stay or trust on him that smote them, but they shall trust in the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Okay, they will, they will follow God in truth, in understanding, okay, of what the truth is. They will know the scriptures. They will follow him. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. And the remnant follows God. When, when Elijah was complaining, I'm the only one that's following you, God. I'm the only one. And God says, go away. I've got 5,000 who haven't bent their knee. Okay, go back and do what I told you to do. Now, we need to be very careful when we start complaining, God, I'm the only one. God says, no, I've got, I've got more. You know, I've got more. Go do what I've told you to do. And, you know, it's very important for us to understand a remnant. God always has a remnant. Even during the really good times, and we saw this in Judges, every time a judge would come along and they'd have a period of prosperity, it was obvious that the people weren't worshiping God. Because as soon as the judge passed away, people did what they wanted to be doing all along. They weren't really following God. They were just honoring him with their lips. And for, in America, we started on a righteous, godly foundation where the majority of people probably were Christian. But over the years, we got further and further away from being a Christian into doing Christian-like things. You know, God, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to keep my vows. I'm going to, you know, whatever, whatever they might have thought was a godly Christian thing, but they didn't know God as a, as a nation. And now we get to our place where they're totally rejecting God. And so now we're in a place where there's a remnant of Christians, okay? And even amongst churches, there are so many churches that are denying God, denying the word of God, not teaching his word. And it's getting harder and harder to find a good church out there. Not impossible. There's still a lot of good churches. But it is quite likely that when you go into a church, you're going to walk into a church that's not a Christian church. Even though they may have Christian on their name, they're not a Christian church. They do not believe in Jesus. They don't believe in the word. They don't believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for it's the only way into heaven. And they will believe in good works. And maybe not even that. And their good works might be defined on what they call good. As we started at the very, very beginning, men calling good bad and bad good. And there are a lot of churches that do the same thing out there. So we need to really be able to discern. Hold up a teachings that we're being exposed to the God's word and say nope doesn't match God's word go find another place teacher nope you're not matching God's word time to go find another another teacher and we need to be so careful hold it up to God's word now is any teacher going to be a hundred percent accurate a hundred percent of the time no if we were we'd be God okay but we should be striving so hard to say this is what God says and when we find out that we've taught something wrong we go, to the, we go to the people and say, you know what, I said such and such the other day, and it's not right. I had to do that one time. It was a very simple thing. I, I, I called uh, somebody, you know, a grandfather to somebody instead of their great uncle. So it was nothing major, nothing earth-shattering. But when, it, when I went back and revealed, I'm going, oh, I've got <laughs> to correct this. I gave wrong information. And it's very important for us to do that. You know, to say, hey, this is something that was not correct and be able to humble herself and say, this is not right. And then it says, and though my, your people be as the sand of the sea, yet only a remnant shall return. And this is what he's saying, Isaiah saying, God, your people are numerous. They're greatly numbered, and yet only a small amount are going to return. 
And we see this. Assyria and the northern kingdom is conquered by, by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Babylon conquers Israel, uh, uh, Judah. Judah is in captivity for 70 years. And King Cyrus comes along and sends them back. And only a few thousand people return back to Israel when they're given permission to leave. Some, and it's not that that was all that was left alive. I mean, some decided, you know, there were not near as many as when they went into captivity. Some decided, well, we've been here 70 years. I, I've been able to build a business. I just want to stay where I'm at. And there's Jewish uh, communities all over the Middle East, all the way through India, uh, up into uh, Turkey and up in the Balkan states. Why? Because they just decided, hey, been here 70 years, I'm happy. And they stayed. When they finally returned, it was a very small remnant that returned. And, uh, and it was prophesied. <laughs> you know, Isaiah said, there's only going to be a few that return. And even if you counted all those different communities all around the, those kingdoms, they still did not, they still were a small remnant compared to what went into captivity. And uh, it says in verse 20, for the Lord of hosts shall make a consumption even determined in the midst of the land. A consumption is a destruction. Okay, God says, I will destroy. And this is the thing we've talked about. You know, when God puts his hand and stretches it out against us, we better repent quickly because we can lose a lot if we don't repent. If we deserve the punishment God's sending us, who knows what's going to happen. If, if you will not bend your knee back to God and, and you are his child, eventually he'll take you home. Okay, because he's not going to have bad testimonies. Okay, now he'll do a lot against us and, and give us a lot of hard times. And usually if you're that determined to go against God, you're going to complain and, and gripe about, look, at all, look what God's doing to me and I'm miserable and, and God's being so mean to me. We'll be like Naomi when when she's headed back to Bethlehem, griping, oh, God's hand is against me. I, you know, never going to be happy again in my life. You know, luckily she repented later on and, and, and got the blessing. But, you know, many of us get that way. God, you're just all to get me. I, you know, no matter what I do, you know, whatever I do, God, you, you, you're out to get me. But the most important word is there, whatever I do. <laughs> my, my job should be to repent to God and let God lead me. When I tr surrender to God, God will do great things in my life. It just takes me repenting, humbling myself. We'll go for it. <laughs> Verse 24. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, O my people that dwell in Zion, be not afraid of, Assyri of the Assyrian, he shall smite you with a rod and shall lift up a staff against you after the manner of Egypt for yet a little while and the indignation shall cease and my anger in their destruction. The Lord of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him according to the slaughter in, of Midian in, at the rock of Oreb, or and as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up in the manner of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off your shoulder and his yoke from off your neck and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. He is come to Aiath. He is passed to Migron at Mechmash. He hath laid upon his carriages. They are gone over the passages. They have taken up their lodgings at Geba. Ramoth is afraid. Gibeah of Saul is fled. Lift up your voice, O daughter of Galglim. Cause it to be heard in Lashes, O poor Anathor. Madmina Mad is removed. The inhabitants of Gibbon gathered themselves to flee. As yet, they, he, as yet shall he remain at Nob that day. He shall shake his hand against the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, shall lop off the branch with terror. The high one's statute shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled, and he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. All right, this is God's deliverance. <laughs> this is his promise to Israel, or to to uh, Judah. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod. He shall lift up a staff against you after the manner of Egypt. 
Yet for a little while the indignation shall cease and my anger at their destruction. So he says he's going to come right to the gates of Jerusalem. Okay, he's going to punish you. And later on we're going to read all these different towns that are all around Jerusalem. Okay, they're, they're under siege. Now we do know that he gets to put Israel, uh, Jerusalem under siege and God kills 175,000 of them in one night and he retreats and is killed by his sons when he retreats. Uh, goes back home and worships his God and in the temple he gets killed by his sons. Okay, so this is God's deliverance. He says, you're gonna, they're going to be right on your doorstep. <laughs> they're going to be right on your doorstep, but he's not going to take the city. It's not your turn yet. All right, and it says, the Lord of the herds so stir up a scourge against him as the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb, and this is from Judges 7.25 where they killed a bunch of people, uh, Midianites, uh, at the rock of Oreb, it's uh, Judges 7. Or as the rod of the sea that lifted up in the manner after Egypt, which is where Moses hanging out, holding out the rod and splitting the sea. So he says, God is powerful. He's going to deliver you. The Israelites, when they were standing on the Red Sea with the sea on one side and the, and the mountains and the army of Egypt on the other side, were in total terror. We have been totally defeated. And Moses said, watch and see what God's going to do. And they walk across on dry land. Uh, same thing in Midian. They, this is the, the battle that, of the Midianites that, where they are totally wiped out um, during Gideon. He has come to Aif and has passed to Migron and, and Michmash. He has laid up his carriages. Uh, Aif is a city in Ammon, which is on their way down there. Micron is, a, is a north of Michmash, and Michmash is a city in Benjamin. So these are cities just outside of Jerusalem. Okay, he says he's conquered them. He's, he's even got his chariots sitting in one of these cities. His, his, his carriages, his, his, his wagon train is there in the city of, of uh, Migron. Uh, They've gone over the passages. They've come with their lodging at Geba. And Giba is another city in Benjamin. So our problem is we don't know the geography we're talking about. So these names don't really mean much as it did to the people that uh, Isaiah was talking. And Ramoth, which is another city in Benjamin, really close to the border of Ephraim, which is to the north part of Benjamin. Uh, and, and, uh, and Ramoth is afraid. Gibeah of Saul is fled. And this is a town about three miles north of Gibeah. Uh, which is still in Benjamin because Saul was a Benjamite. Oh, lift up your voice, O daughter of Galim. Now, I'm not sure if anybody has ever known where Galim is for anybody sitting in this room, but do you know who Micah is? Micah was given to David to be his wife. She was the daughter of, second daughter of Saul. When David fled from Saul, Saul gave Micah to a man of Galim. <laughs> So this is a city in Benjamin. Okay, so you can hear the story behind this city. This one's more famous than most of the cities that we've listed. Oh, poor Anathoth, and that was a city of the, of the priest and the Levites. Madminah is removed, and this is a city north of Jerusalem. The inhabitants of Gibeth have fled, and Gibeth is another city north of Jerusalem. There are all these people, all these cities are being wiped out by, by Assyria. And it says, and yet shall he remain at Nob that day. And Nob is a, another city north of, and this is where he, was, where he stayed. He, he's camped out in Nob as he got ready to besiege Israel. And he says, he shall shake his hand against the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Okay, he's going to threaten them. Okay, that's what he means. He's shaking his stick. I'm threatening you. We're coming. We're going to come and fight against you. Most of these cities aren't on these smaller maps in the back of the Bible. Uh, behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts. I love this. The Lord, the Lord of hosts. In case you didn't know who the Lord is, he's, he's the Lord of the army. <laughs> shall wrap the bow with the bow with terror, and the high one statute shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled. This humble, this mighty, proud king is going to be chopped down to the ground. And that's where we said God kills his army, and he goes back home in, in defeat, and then his sons kill him as he's in the temple. Uh, is what history tells us. And he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. 
Lebanon, Damascus, Assyria, all that area, and they're all going to fall to Nebuchadnezzar, who's the next great empire that comes along. And this was all given and stated before uh, Babylon was really an, a strong empire. Babylon at the time that they're con you know, it's just a small nation, no, nothing significant. Now it's had some history. Nimrod built Babylon, he ruled from Babylon, but it's at this point in t history is just a small, insignificant kingdom. Assyria is the big kingdom right now. Nobody is able to beat Assyria. Every time Assyria goes out to battle, they win. Same thing is going to be said of Babylon when, he, when Nebuchadnezzar is out there. When he goes to war, you lose. We get to, to Greek. When, when uh, Alexander the Great is leading his army, they win. The, the Caesars of Rome were known. Somehow they got to be known as winners. They lost a lot of battles, though. Uh, Alexander very rarely lost battles. He lost a few, but he didn't lose a lot of battles. Nimrod, uh, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't lose a lot of battles. So these are very powerful nations that come up. And he says, I'm going to knock this nation down to its knees. I'm going to chop them right down. They're not even going to see it coming. And as soon as they, they did, very shortly thereafter, they were conquered. And Nebuchadnezzar is the one who conquers them and, and finishes the humbling of this king who thinks he's so proud that he can do what he wants. And he gets that judgment because of how badly he treats the northern kingdom and their people. He's out to destroy them, and God just wanted him to punish them. And God says, okay, you went too far. I'm going to punish you. Okay, so, so. so he's taken, the king of Assyria has taken over Israel, and now he's headed to Jerusalem. Correct. He's now going to the southern kingdom. And all these, all these cities that we listed in here are part of, part of, the, of Israel, they're, they're of Judah. They're, they're in Benjamin. They're part of Judah. Uh, and he's conquered a lot, and he's starting to conquer, conquer, and the people in Jerusalem are really worried. Okay, everything he's going to is being conquered, and they're being told by all these prophets, don't worry about him. Now, it's one thing to be told not to worry, and it's another thing not to. But that really goes to say, do I trust God? And we go through that same trial in our, day, our daily life. Will I trust God? He said it in his word, am I going to trust him? And unfortunately, many times we fail. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, many, many times we fail. And God's, I can see God shaking his head. How much more do I have to do? I told you in the word four or five dozen times and you still won't believe me. I demonstrated my love and my care for you over and over again and you still won't believe me. And hopefully we get to the place where we mature that we believe him more than we don't believe him. And I can see God just having a smile on his face. They're finally getting it. Finally, they're getting it. They're starting to trust me. And, you know, this is something that's important. Where is our trust? Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. You know, Proverbs 3, 5. You know, and we need to be able to trust in God. Always. Even when it looks like it doesn't make sense, even when it looks like God's lost his marbles and doesn't know what's going on, we need to trust God. And I know that's hard to do sometimes. I've had to learn the hard way to try to trust him more often than not. But you know, it's fun when you learn to trust him. And when you start trusting him more and more, it's even more fun just to watch God work. And just to say, wow, look how great my God is. I love it when, when we read the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not bowing down in front of the idol. Okay, that happens again in the, pla in, the, in the plain of Shinar is where they didn't bow down to the idol. Okay? And you know how they must have stuck out like a sore thumb? Three guys standing up in the middle of all these guys with their face down to the ground. Okay? And then being called up. And the king was trying to be nice to them. He liked them. Because maybe you didn't hear my command. Maybe you didn't hear the words that I spoke. But when the music plays, bow down. And they go, oh, king, we will not bow down. So he plays the music. They did not bow down. But I've always loved their statement. Because Nebuchadnezzar goes, I'm going to throw you into the fire. And what God can deliver you from my hand? What pride he had at that point in his life. And I love their answer. Our God can deliver us. But whether he does or does not, we will not bow down to your idol. I love their faith. And these guys are no more than 20. When they do this, 
And most of us would be okay. Well, when I was 20, I was playing in the field and sowing my oats and, and doing this, that, and the other thing. And we see guys in the Bible that had great godliness and were standing for God during all of this time. And, you know, and I want to challenge everybody that, especially young children and, and nieces, nephews, grandchildren, whatever, stand for God at an early age. You may not have a second chance if you don't. And so we want to be able to look at that. And we're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to learn to trust in you and not in those that seem to be strong and people that seem to be strong. And Lord, help us to be able to follow you in all that we do, be led with you. Learn, help us learn to trust in you with all our hearts and not with what we see. In Jesus' name, amen.